Okay, so let's look at reforming society in antebellum America. Now, this is going to be around 1800 to 1860. So this is going to be right before we hit the Civil War. This topic starts off with the Second Great Awakening, and this is going to be the state of American religion in the early 18th century, and it's going to, you know, go into the early 19th, or, yeah, early to mid-19th century. So, at this time, around 75% of Americans did attend church regularly. Um, pro uh, Protestantism is going to be the dominant form. You're going to have Calvinists and Quakers and Shakers and um, some Lutherans, mainly from Germany. You're also going to have a, a decent amount of Catholics coming in. A lot of those are going to be your Irish Catholics. Anywho. So, there's going to have this... There's going to be this whole um, way of thinking that's going to change or kind of challenge these traditional views of religion. It's going to be these rationalists. You're going to have uh, deism, and you're also going to have Unitarianism. Now, the rationalist, which is part of the Enlightenment ideas that started in the 14th and you know, well, 14 and 1500s. Um, these are going to idea be ideas of the French Revolution era, so we're spanning all the way into the 1700s, early 18s. They're going to remain influential, and it's going to come across, you know, come across the sea into America. The deisms. Now, this is going to be promoted by people like Thomas Paine. Uh, it will be influential for you know future president. Well, future, past, etc. Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and other w people who consider themselves to be children of the Enlightenment. Now, it's going to rely on reason instead of the idea of revelation. It's going to be science rather than the Bible. It's also going to reject the concept of original sin, and it's going to de uh, deny the idea of Christ's divinity. Now, these deists will believe in a supreme being who created a knowledgeable universe or knowable new universe so meaning that uh, as we continue to explore we can know everything and they're going to endow human beings with a ca uh, capacity for moral behavior so basically he's saying that we have the ability to know and understand what we're doing that's the the deist idea uh, your unitarianism this is going to be inspired by deism that's uh, going to be a very important break from Puritanism. If you remember, Puritans founded a lot of the New England states. They were being um, oppressed. They were being, you know, kind of brutalized over in England. And they made it over into the, the colonies. Um, Unitarianism is also going to claim that God exists in one person. They don't believe in the Trinity, so the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is not something that they jive with. It's going to stress the essential goodness of human nature rather than the evil nature of people like Hobbes. Um, it's also going to point out that there is free will, and there will be the salvation through good works, which goes against the idea of Lutheranism. It's also going to see God as a loving father instead of a stern creator. And this is going to appeal to a lot of intellectuals. So people like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson 
who wanted this idea of rationalism and optimism. Now, the impact is it's going to basically be a reaction. The, uh, the Second Great Awakening is going to be a reaction to the growing liberalism of these stated religions. So, deism, unitarianism, around these religious, you know, the beginnings of religion in the 1800s, around 1800. Now, it's going to begin in the southern frontier, but it eventually will spread to the northeastern cities. And it's going to be probably one of the most important eras in the history of American religion. It will influence a lot of people far more than the First Great Awakening. You're going to get a lot of revivalism that's going to spread to the masses. This is going to be coming through these camp meetings. Um... You're going to have, it's going to draw uh, pretty large crowds. You're looking at like 25,000 people that are going to gather for several days to hear these uh, fire and brimstone, these hellfire gospels. Uh, your Methodists and your Baptists are going to be those who are going to benefit the most from revivalism. And both of these sects are going to stress personal conversion. Now, this is going to be the opposite of the Puritans' idea of predestination, because if you remember, these are just English Calvinists, uh, both in relatively democratic control of church affairs, and both stressed emotionalism in sermons. So, a lot of, you know, passion that's getting into it. You're going to see a lot of people weeping and really getting the, the spirit. Uh, Peter Cartwright, he's one of the best known uh, circuit riders or traveling preachers for the Methodists. Just a little fun fact. My like great 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 grandfather, maybe. It was the first family in Greene County, or one of the first families in Greene County, and he ended up being a traveling preacher. I believe he was Baptist. So. But yeah, just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, Charles Grandison Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y. He was considered to be one of the greatest of the revival preachers, and he believed in the earthly perfectionism. So, this is kind of a Puritan strain of thought instead of the more like Baptist and, you know, Methodist. Uh, he also inspired the major reform movement. So, things like public, public, public education, temperance, and abolitionism. The Methodist and Baptist churches are going to end up becoming the two largest Protestant denominations in the United States. And that pretty much goes to today. Now, these other new sects, so we get these new groups. You get Episcopalians, uh, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Unitarians. All of them are going to be here. We get these uh, burned-over districts. This is going to be around western New York. Uh, so, a lot of your New England Puritans are going to settle there. The region is going to be known for its hellfire and damnation sermons. There's going to be fragmentation that will occur. So, then we get these new groups, these Adventists, also known as the Millerites and the Mormons. The Mormons, uh, Joseph Smith, he's going to found the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1830. And he's going to write the Book of Mormon. Now, the Mormons were originally persecuted in Ohio, then in Missouri, and in Illinois. And this had to do primarily with the practice of polygamy because it created a lot of enemies. Uh, in 1844, Joseph Smith 
your founder here, and his brother were murdered by a mob in Illinois. Now, Bram Young is going to lead these Mormons to Salt Lake City, Utah in 1846-1847-ish, where they're eventually going to establish a frontier society. They're also going to um, start establish, establishing some different um, like irrigation and water well systems and whatnot. So they really kind of revolutionize the, the area. Uh, the Mormons are later going to disregard the polygamy laws that are going to be passed by Congress in 62 and 82. These are This is 1862, 1882. We're definitely not getting closer to this time period yet. Um, as a result of this, Utah was refused statehood until 1896 when it eventually abandoned polygamy. Now, these wealthier or better educated levels of society were not affected by any of this revivalism. So, that's going to be your Episcopalians, your Presbyterians, like I was talking about earlier. Some of your poor communities, generally in the rural south and the west, are going to be the most affected by the religious revivalism. You're going to end up with a slavery issue that will split your Baptist, your Methodist, and your Presbyterians along these sectional lines. So, you're going to have this succession of southern churches, and it's really going to foreshadow the succession of the southern states. Then we get into the age of reform because we're reforming all of these major systems that have major flaws. So we start to reform, you know, we have this abolition of slavery. And this is going to be the most important reform movement, but we'll get more than that when we get into our next chapter. Then there's temperance. So, alcohol abuse was rampant in the 19th century. This is also known as the Alcoholic Republic. Uh, alcoholism decreased the efficiency of labor while obviously increasing the injuries in the workplace. Women and children are going to end up being vulnerable to physical abuse by these drunken husbands or fathers. Now, in order to combat this, we came up with the American Temperance Society. This is going to be formed in Boston in 1826 and led by Lyman Beecher, L-Y-M-A-N. Beecher, B-E-E-C-H-E-R. Now, within a few years, there's going to be a th around a thousand local groups that will emerge in the area. They're going to urge drinkers to give up alcohol. They'll organize children's clubs. Uh, they will write books like T.S. Arthur's Ten Nights in a Bar Room and What I Saw There. This is going to depict how a stable village was eventually, you know, adversely transformed into this this horrible area because a new tavern came in town. And this is going to be the second bestseller in the 1850s, right behind Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was another reform, you know, document there. Now, there's going to be two major strategies. The first is that temperance is going to promote moderate use of alcohol rather than abstinence. The second, the second is that it, you know, a prohibition was sought to make alcohol completely illegal. So you have the the Dow Law, D-O-W. This is going to be from Neil S. Dow. He's considered to be the father of prohibition. He's going to sponsor this main law of 1851 that will prohibit the manufacture and the sale of liquor. Now, by 1857, 12 more states will eventually pass these different prohibitionary laws. Um, eventually, though, a lot of these are going to be overturned still in the 1850s. Now, the result of the temperance movement, 
movement. We did have reduced drinking among women compared to earlier in the century. There's going to be less per capita consumption of hard liquor. But this is going to be due in part to the changing nature of society that resulted from the panic revolution and less from like the temperance societies. Uh, the Panic of 1837 is also going to reduce the demand for alcohol. So the temperance movement itself really didn't have the impact that uh, was expected. Then we have the women's rights movements. This is going to start picking up and again, well, these another one of these reforms. So the gender lines are going to be more sharply drawn in the 19th century. This is going to be due to the Industrial Revolution. The market revolution is going to separate men and women into these distinct economic roles. So women are going to be viewed physically and emotionally weak, but also as artistic and refined. So you have this idea of the Republican motherhood. Now this is going to emerge during the American Revolutionary Era and it's going to dominate society's view toward women until the market revolution. Now women were seen as keepers of society's conscience with a special responsibility to raise children to become productive citizens loyal to the Republic. So that's part of that, you know, Republican motherhood. Then we get into the cult of domesticity. This is going to come to dominate middle class views and to a smaller extent working class views of women's proper role in society or what they believe to be women's proper role the revivalism of the second great awakening is going to end up reinforcing the traditional view of women as the guardians of morality in the home so they kind of called them the angel in the home now some women are going to want to break away from this role of the homemaker and they want to participate in the public world of men so you have that inner realm and that outer realm that inner realm was that cult of domesticity where, you know, women were supposed to stay in the home and cook and clean and take care of the children and raise them to be productive members of society, where you had the outer realm, which was the men's role of things like business and public affairs, like politics. All right, so you had your female reformers that are going to advocate women's suffrage and other rights for women. They also participate in the general reform movements of the age, like temperance and abolition. And a turning point is going to occur when women were excluded from the first world's anti-slavery convention in London. So this is really going to spark a lot of, a lot of uproar, kind of. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she is one of those famous founding women, you know, of the reform movement in America. Uh, she's going to urge equality for women, the legal rights to sue, and the rights to own property. She wants to, you know, she wanted to end the femme covert. Basically, this is where a husband took control of his wife's property upon marriage. And, you know, like we discussed in class a little bit, that if once you divorced, you didn't get that back. Uh, Lucretia Mott, she worked with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and she organized the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. Susan B. Anthony, she was a Quaker and a protege of uh, Stanton. She was also a militant lecturer for women's rights, and she voted and went to jail for it. The Grimke sisters, you have Angelina and Sarah. Both of them were Southern abolitionists and women's rights advocates. Sarah was also a, a powerful writer on behalf of women's, right, women's rights. Their role uh, created a bridge between that the abolition movement and the new women's rights movement. And it, this was supported by William Lord Garrison, who was an abolitionist up north who wrote The Liberator. Uh, Lucy Stone, she helped organize the first National Women's Rights Convention in 1850. She was an avid abolitionist. 
Um, after the war, she created a women's only suffrage organization and she retained her maiden name after she was married. So women who followed her example were known as the Lucy Stoners. So kind of like Tom Hiddleston and his Hiddlestoners. Amelia Bloomer, she's who popularized a short skirt with Turkish trousers, and they became known as Bloomers. Uh, they were challenged as too masculine and immoral. Margaret Fuller, she edited a trans transcendentalist journal called The Dial, and she wrote that women were the spiritual and artistic equal of men. Now, the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, this was a women's rights convention, and it's going to launch the modern women's rights movement. It's going to be organized by Stanton and Mont, and you're going to have an attendance of, a, of, of almost 100 people. Uh, there were 61 women and 34 men. This is where they wrote the Declaration of Sentiments that stated that all, all men and women are created equal, not just all men are created equal. This is going to demand women's suffrage and seek property ownership for women within the marriage. It's also going to seek increased child custody rights for women who are divorced. Uh, the mainstream press and churches were obviously strongly opposed to this because they were still part of that cult of domesticity. Uh, the women's rights movement was overshadowed by the abolitions, abolitionists and the Civil War, which, why it, which is why it didn't get a whole lot of ground until much later. Uh, the gains for women prior to the Civil War were uh, women were actually starting to get to attend college uh, in Mississippi in 1839 in New York in the late 1840s when they could own their own property even after they were married. After 1860, some states passed laws that enabled women to work or own a business independently of their family, and they could keep their own earnings separate from their family accounts or their husband's accounts. Now, another reform was education, so public education. War reformers saw public education as a way to instill strong Protestant morality and uh, Republican values in children. Horace Mann, he was the most important educational reformer of the age. Now, he's going to argue a key to reform in U.S. society was better education. He established state normal schools to better train teachers in Massachusetts. His influence is going to spread to other states, and impressive improvements are going to be made prior to the Civil War. Uh, the tax-supported public education will triumph between 1820 and 1850 in the East and the West. This is going to be, you know, less so much than in the South. Uh, laborers and working men's movements in Eastern cities increasingly demanded education for their children. This is going to be, they're going to want the increased manhood suffrage, and this is going to mean that workers are going to push for free education for their children. Uh, wealthy citizens are gradually going to support free education because they saw education as a means to promote, promote order and more reform among the lower classes that they thought were less educated and needed this education to kind of bring themselves up. Uh, despite a lot of these gains, there's going to be resistance to compulsory public education, meaning that you had to go. Uh, some working class families need their children to work rather than going to school because, remember, we're still trying to reform that 18-hour workday and the pay and the benefits, etc. Uh, secondary education is going to lag behind elementary education. It's not going to be seen as as important. And this is going to run all the way into the like early 1900s. Um, in places like Arkansas, they really felt like you only needed like an 8th grade education. And after that, you were good. Uh, slaves were forbidden to, to learn to read or to write. 
and even free northern blacks were usually excluded from schools so there was that you know that divide there uh, the bulging Catholic population is going to resist the Protestant moralizing of public schools, and they're going to opt for their own private Catholic parochial schools. And we still have those today. Now, higher education is still within that education reform. The Second Great Awakening is going to lead to the creation of a lot of these small denominational liberal arts schools, mostly in the South and the West. Uh, women's schools are going to start to gain some respectability in the 1820s. Emma Willard is going to establish the Troy, this is in New York, female seminary in 1821, and then Oberlin College is going to open to both men and women in 1837, also for African Americans. Then you have the Lyceums, L-Y-C-E-U-M-S. And these are going to be venues for traveling lectures in things like science, literature, and moral philosophy. There's going to be around 3,000 Lyceum moral, not moral, sorry, 3,000 Lyceum lecture associations that are going to exist by 1835. Now, this is going to be in contrast to the morally oriented public schools. Lyceums are going to encourage independent thinking and new ideas. Now, Dorothea Dix, so this is a new, new kind of reform. So now we're looking at kind of at prisons and as mental institutions. Now, she's going to work to improve the treatment of the, the mentally ill. She was one of the most successful reformers of the age, and she reported the horrible conditions that were in prisons, poorhouses, and basements where the insane were often kept in chains. Her efforts resulted in improved conditions, and she influenced the view that the insane were not willfully perverse, but in fact mentally ill. Fifteen states are going to create new hospitals and asylums as a resort, re, uh, result. Now, with the prison reforms, inmates were given increased ex uh, access to religious services. Want, they wanted to do a shift to rehabilitation rather than punishment. And there's going to be groundbreaking institutions at Auburn, uh, Auburn, New York, and in Philadelphia. They're going to gain world renown for their humanitarian practices. They isolated inmates as to keep them from being adversely influenced by other convicts. And a lot of times the prison, prison officials are going to serve as the moral advisors. But ultimately, prison reforms were largely unsuccessful due to things like overcrowding, the brutal punishments that went with it, and inadequate training of the prison personnel. While, they, while we were looking at imprisonment, we were, all, we were also looking at debtor's prison. Uh, the practice of this is going to be reduced significantly. Significantly, in 1833, the federal government is going to actually outlaw the federal imprisonment of unpaid debts, and most states will abolish the practice in response. Because, as we've discussed, what sense does it make to imprison someone because they can't pay for something because they can't work to con to pay for it? It just seems like it's a you're just going in a circle. All right, so utopian communities. Now, there's going to be various reformers that are going to set up around 40-ish communities uh, that are considered to be cooperative or communitarian in nature. They were disillusioned by this materialistic and rapidly industrialized society. Now, there's going to be a few different ones. Uh, the first we're going to talk about is New Harmony. This is going to be in Indiana. Around 1,000 people are going to be led by Robert Owen, and the society is going to be founded in 1825. Uh, some of the things that we did get out of it is the idea of the you know, free public schools, free libraries, and the first American kindergarten. 
Uh, sadly, though, this is only going to last a couple years. It's going to end up kind of breaking apart and dying out. Uh, Brook Farm in Massachusetts was founded by a group of transcendentalists, sorry, T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N-D-E-N-T-A-L-I-S-T-S. Yeah. Anyway, it's going to last between 1841-1846. It's going to be a cooperative community that's going to have these members working the common lands and devoting time to spiritual matters. There's going to be several well-known American authors that will live there at various times, including Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Oneida Colony was founded in New York in 1848. They're going to be more radical than most. It will believe that the second upcoming of Christ had already taken place, and it's going to seek a new form of perfectionism based on a new morality. It's going to practice free love, birth control, and eugenic selection of parents in order to produce superior offspring. Now, it believed that uh, corporate marriage was what they had, and it was between all members of the society to each other. Uh, it practiced communal care of children and sexual equality. Now, the, the colony flourished for over 30 years and has had to do with its production of superior steel traps and the manufacturing of silver plates. Now, you should recognize Onada because Onada is also um, a type of silverware that you can get from places like Walmart. The Shakers, this is a united society of believers in Christ's second appearing. They established a communistic society in Lebanon, New York. They believed uh, Christ's return was imminent. And this was the longest-lived sect. It began in 1774, and it ran until 1940. Uh, Mother Anne Lee is going to transplant the movement in America from her native England. They set up about 20 religious communities and had about 6,000 members by 1840. They believed in sexual equality, and they had an opposition to both marriage and free love will lead to their eventual extinction. extinction. Uh, they believed in celibacy, the equal spirit value, sorry, the equal spiritual value of men and women, and the simplicity of architecture and furnishings. The new members were adopted as orphans or recruited through conversion. That's the only way that they were able to grow because, like I said, they believed in celibacy. The Amana community was founded in Iowa in 1855. They believed in this perfectionist communal structure, uh, and they believed in the imminent millennium. So this is going to be similar to the Millerites. The manufacturing business from this community still exists. Amana should sound a little bit familiar considering you can get uh, like water heaters. And they say Amana on them. Anyway. Uh, Mormons are also part of this. They're considered to, to, have, <clears throat> to have been a utopian society. And the most successful of all the groups seeing as they still exist today. Right, the Changing American Family. So women increasingly challenged their inferior status. So women were better off in the U.S. than in Europe, especially on the frontier where women were more scarce. So they had more, you know, ability to kind of get around and do what they wanted to. Uh, the increase of numbers, increased number of women 
uh, are going to start avoiding marriage. It's going to be around 10% by 1860. Middle class women began working as school teachers, and working class women were often worked in domestic service. 10% of white women worked for pay outside their own homes in 1850, and 20% had been employed at some time prior to marriage. Most women left their jobs upon marriage, became homemakers, and that's that cult of domesticity, which will glorify the traditional function of the homemaker. Women had large moral power and influence in the family affairs. Uh, Gaudet's Ladies Book, G-O-D-E-Y apostrophe S, Ladies Book. Uh, this is a magazine that will be founded in 1830, and it will survive until 1898, and it will promote the cult of domesticity. And it was one of the most widely circulated magazines in the U.S. prior to the Civil War. Now, as you went on, you had these changes in the family itself. Most marriages were based on love instead of some kind of arrangement. Families became more close-knit. Close knit. They became more affectionate. Uh, families started to get, get smaller. Uh, births would fall by half during the 19th century from having, you know, on average six to... Instead, instead of six kids, you're looking at more like four kids per family. Uh, contraceptive, you know, contraception was starting to be practiced. Now, it wasn't discussed in public because this is something that uh, could get you arrested, actually. Uh, smaller families would result in a more child-centered families. Corporal punishment is going to end up being reduced. There's going to be more emphasis on shaping than breaking. Children were raised to be independent and moral individuals, and the outlines of the modern family were clear by the mid-century. So there's going to be several, you know, views concerning American women up to 1860 from the starting off in the colonial period. We kind of go from the colonial period to the Republican motherhood. It's around 1765 to 1830. Then the cult of domesticity or the antebellum era, the 19th century. And then finally the women's rights movement where we start to see things like Seneca Falls Convention and uh, women like Elizabeth Cady Standen. Lucretia Mott and uh, Margaret Fuller are going to come out. 